couple weeks ago, I, was not, uh, I wasn't working on Sunday morning, and so I, I went to a neighboring church uh, uh, that was worshiping inside, and, um, and I got to feel what it was like, uh, A, to kind of stand up when we were singing and not be able to sing, and I, I know it's a very, very kind of strange feeling, even when you're just sitting down. I feel like our hearts naturally want to respond, and though we may not realize it, usually, of course, the way that we do that is through singing back. And so uh, I invite you, um, when, when we're kind of worshiping in song, uh, to try to figure out something maybe that you can do even physically. Rather, it's, you know, you can lift your arms up, you can fold them, or even just have them out like this, uh, just kind of on your laps even. Uh, just do something in some way uh, as a way of, of kind of almost substituting that sense of, of being able to, uh, to join in in our praise of God. Um, I find that, at least for me, um, has been very, very helpful. All right. So this morning, uh, we are continuing in our look at, uh, at the wilderness and uh, flourishing in the wilderness, but we're doing things a little differently than what I had originally planned. I had originally planned uh, the text that we're going to look at today to be the very final Sunday uh, of the sermon series, but for reasons that will probably become more clear, uh, I've decided to move it up to this particular Sunday, and this is going to be a look at uh, the Gospel of Luke and at Jesus when he was in the wilderness, and then next week we'll go back to Numbers. So I invite you now, though, to hear this very familiar story. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will be all Yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, what a joy and a privilege it is to be together this morning. All is not the same as it has been, but all is not the same wherever we may be, in here or out in our homes or in the world but we pray that you would be with us even now. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. Now, I said before I read the scripture that we weren't really going to be talking about Israel in the wilderness. That's not holy true. The reality is, if, if you want to get to know or understand this story of Jesus and the temptation in, his, in the wilderness for him, uh, your understanding is enriched much or greatly by simply knowing what happened 
with Israel in the wilderness. There are a lot of similarities between what the Israelites were going through and what Jesus actually experienced as he was there in the wilderness himself. For instance, uh, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, and the Israelites wandered in, G- in, in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, you also, as you continue to kind of remember the story, you can remember that, 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 that Israel was forced almost, that God led them into the wilderness himself. In fact, we talked about that several weeks ago. And here, Jesus is also led out into the wilderness by means of the Holy Spirit. And so what you can begin to see is that Jesus is reenacting what's going on with Israel in the wilderness. And there are, of course, other similarities. Think about the kinds of temptations that Jesus was facing. Jesus uh, went through and first um, um, uh, he was hungry because he hadn't eaten for 40 days. And so Satan offers him some food. And when we remember this hunger, for those of us who have been paying attention to this uh, series, almost every Sunday it seems like they have talked about how the Israelites are hungry, right? And so you see this and the Israelites failed, of course, because they continually questioned God, whereas Jesus did not turn the stones into bread as Satan had told him to. Or we think about worship. Now, we didn't cover the story, but most of you are familiar with this story. When they're out in the wilderness, the Israelites begin to worship, not God, but a golden calf. And of course, here in this particular story, Satan offers him, offers Jesus everything as long as he would worship Satan. And Jesus says, no, 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 you are called to worship only God. And then, of course, we see in here, we remember that uh, in the Israelites, when they're in the wilderness, they're continually kind of uh, testing God. In fact, God said, why, why are these people, why are they testing me? Moses was always talking about the fact that the Israelites were always testing him. And in here, in this third temptation, we see that Jesus says to Satan, no, we are called not to test God. So if you were a Jewish listener to this particular story in Luke and you were hearing the story, you would know immediately that Jesus' story is the story of the Israelite people. You would immediately begin to realize that all these times that the Israelites were in the wilderness and were failing and were disobeying again and again and again, that Jesus each time was fulfilling those things, was not disobeying. And so they would begin to realize that Jesus was both connected to the Israelite story, but there was something different about it this time. But there's also another similarity, it seems to me, between these two stories and that is the, the, the role that baptism plays in the wilderness. Remember what we talked about with the Israelites. Uh, when they came through, they went through the waters of the Red Sea. And so we talked about the fact that this was really, uh, in many sense, this was kind of a baptism. And a part of the reason why they were there was so that God, as God kind of took them through the Red Sea, what God began to do is explain to them that God was with them begin to explain to them that they were children of God, that they were loved by him, and that they were called to worship him. And remember what Walter Brueggemann said. He said that really the journey through the wilderness was a journey through the Israelite 
people beginning to grow an understanding of who they were as loved children of God. We talked about that several weeks ago, that a part of the reason why we continue in this journey as we as baptized children of God, as we kind of continue to go through the wilderness, a part of our call is to grow in our understanding of who we are as beloved children of God and what it means to worship God. And of course, this is exactly what we see as well with Jesus. Do you remember what happened right before Jesus went to the wilderness? I didn't read it. Uh, it comes out of Luke 3. What, what happens to Jesus? What does he do? He is... That's right, baptized. He's baptized. And do you remember what, do you remember what God says as he's baptized? This is my son, identity, with whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus is baptized and given this identity, right, where God says, this is who I am, and then he takes him into the wilderness. And do you remember what Satan says to Jesus more than once? He says this, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself off of the temple, in other words, he's going out into the wilderness and, and what is happening is that Satan isn't saying, is this really true? Are you really the son of God? Are you really a beloved child of God? Do you see the similarities well, as well, again, between what the Israelites are doing and what Jesus is experiencing? And I think that's really important for us. There's a couple of things I want to point out this morning and a couple of reasons why I really wanted us to think about this Lucan text today. One of those is this, as we gather together in this space, what we remember, and I know that many of you cannot gather with us this morning, but I look forward to the day when you can because there's just something about coming into a sacred or set apart space like this. A part of the reason, a major part of the reason why we come in here and why we do that rhythmically every week is so that we can be reminded that we are loved children of God, that we can remember who God says that we are. So we come into this space, and when you come into this space, almost primarily, almost exclusively, we use it in order to pray. We use it in order to sing, or at least hear people sing, or hear someone sing. We do it in order to hear the word proclaimed. When you come in here, you probably remember, those of you who can see this, we, I don't know how long this has been here, it's been here longer than me, but you see, the, you see the Bible, right? And it's this physical image and this reminder of the story of God and where we fit into the pages of that story. We see the table, right? And when we see the table, we are reminded of the sacrifice of God. We are reminded what God has done for us. We see the baptism, right? And we even put some water in there today. We see this and we are reminded when we see this or when we see a baptism, we are reminded that we have been baptized as children of God and are loved by God. That's one of the beautiful things about being able to come in here this morning. But there's something else I want us to also think about. Well, let me go back to this. The beloved children of God. One of the things that I, I realize is so crucial for us is to remember as we come back in here the fact that we are beloved children of God. Why? Because so often when we leave this place, we easily forget 
We forget either because of the demons that are within us that are always questioning ourselves. We forget because of our workplace. We forget because of what's going on at home. We forget for lots of different reasons. And I'll be honest with you. Um, I only remember typically how important that is when I come and, and, and I did this several weeks ago when we have as the main theme of the Sunday a reminder that you are loved children of God, that God delights you. Because almost inevitably, just like a few weeks ago, when I do that, When I look out, I see people with eyes that begin to well up with tears. It it surprises me because in some sense, like we talk about that a fair amount. And so whenever I have a message like that, as I'm leading up to it, I'm thinking, oh, no, people are going to be like, seriously, Jerry, is there no other message that you can give? Have you really run out of material? But when I say it and I talk about it and I look at people, it is clear how easy it is to forget Sometimes I think, well, you won't really care because, look, everyone seems to have it so well you know, put together. Everything seems to be going well in your lives. And yet again, when I come in and I talk about this and I look in people's eyes and I say, you are a beloved child of God. Remember, you have been baptized. Remember how much God loves you. Oftentimes, it's like they have heard it for the first time. But I shouldn't really be surprised because in those moments, quite frankly, when I actually think and listen to myself, I realize that I also wrestle with that. I also wrestle with remembering my baptism. And I think, really, God, are you sure, even me? I was encouraged by something that Martin Luther said, the great reformer. Martin Luther said that whenever he was struggling internally or externally, that he would say, okay, I'm a baptized child of God. And then Satan would, he could hear Satan in his voice, and Satan would say, Luther, you are hopeless. Luther, you are stubborn. You are prideful. You are arrogant. You are a no good sinner. And Luther would say, That is so true. That is so true, Satan. But I have been baptized. And I love this sense that no matter what, There is this beauty of knowing that no matter how much we know about ourselves, no matter what others may say, when we come in here every week, we are reminded that we are baptized. We are reminded that we are beloved children of God. A part of the wilderness journey, a part of the the journey that Jesus was on was to remember, was to know, was to be clear that Jesus was the Son of God, to be clear that we are loved children of God. Now, here's the thing. As you grow in that identity, what you also begin to realize is that if we're children of God, that means, of course, that we have a call, which is to worship God and God alone. In other words, being baptized is not just about the sense that you are a loved child of God. It means as a loved child of God, what you begin to understand is that you are called to worship God and God alone. And this, of course, is exactly what Jesus says to Satan. We are called to worship God and God alone. But the truth is, we easily are seduced. We are easily tempted to begin to worship things other than God. This is something that we talk about a lot. Usually when we talk about it, we say things like we, we easily begin to worship our own status, or we worship wealth, or we, we, we worship success, and those things are easily uh, seductresses of ours, and we begin to kind of go in that direction rather than worshiping God. But 
But this week, things are a little bit different. And commentators point out, and I think rightfully so, that that perhaps as alluring as those kinds of temptations are temptations that are actually, in one sense, really good. For instance, think about Jesus. There he is. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. And there are stones, and he can prove himself, in a sense, by turning them into bread. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't seem, at least, not at first. Or think about the second temptation. The temptation where Satan says, look, you can have all power. You can have all authority. You, Jesus, listen here, Jesus. You can change the world just as you want it. Just like you want it. Not only that, Jesus, you don't even have to suffer. You'll never have to struggle. You won't have to serve. You certainly won't have to sacrifice. You won't have to die. Right now, you can have it all. You can make the world just as you want it. You only need to do one thing, though, which is that you need to bow down to me. And once you've done that, then it's going to be okay. Fred Craddock says that it's a political temptation that Jesus is facing, where he is submitted, or he is tempted to submit to the ruler of the world in order to achieve good for the people of the world. It's really not a bad deal in many ways. If Jesus would simply decide to not resist power and politics as the way in which the kingdom of God will ultimately be brought to fruition, then he could avoid all of the struggles and the challenges and the cross. But what Jesus understood was that it was not his call. What Jesus understood is that power from above and an earthly realm is not the way in which the kingdom of God was going to be achieved. And I think that that is a really important message for us as followers of Jesus to think about in this particular time. Now, this is a a, a little bit of a dicey conversation. And so I'm glad it's just a few of us here to have it. I want to be clear in one thing, which is I think that politics actually can be really helpful. I think you should vote. I already voted. I voted at Town Hall in Zionsville. There was no line. It was amazing. It was like a little miracle, really. Politics can get some good stuff done. I've seen some great stuff done through politics. The Lord uses leaders, right? Whether those leaders want to be used all the time or not, the God, God oftentimes uses leaders. So we don't come from a tradition that says we should have nothing to do with the politics of this world. At the same time, I want to be equally clear that I am concerned that far too many followers of Jesus have begun to see that the way that the kingdom of God is ultimately going to come is really almost solely or at least much through what goes on all around us, through much of kind of the earthly means, if you will. So much so that many have begun to see that the ends perhaps do justify the means, that, that just getting to the place is more important than exactly how we get there. That if 
if and only if our particular candidate is elected, then God's will can be done. And in so doing, what I'm suggesting this morning is this, that when we begin to worship or focus on those things so much that we have forgotten our baptism, that we have forgotten who we are, and that we have stopped worshiping God and have begun to worship power and politics. And it is hard to know when you have crossed over the hope that politics can be a tool from when we begin to actually worship power and politics as a whole. And so let me suggest a few things for each of us to do, especially over the next couple of days, and judging our own hearts as to whether or not we have not perhaps begun to bow down and worship this kingdom rather than God's kingdom. First is this. Are you allowing anxiety and fear to rule your heart and mind in such a way that what happens at the, on the election day has really become the focal point of your life. I don't care which campaign you look at, Trump's, Biden's, uh, maybe Joe Jorgensen, the libertarian. I haven't actually seen Joe Jorgensen's, but I can promise you that whichever candidate it is, they are all peddling fear and anxiety in some way. This is just what happens. It's how you move people. It's how you get people to vote. And look, that's fine. But what isn't fine, it seems to me, is when I find followers of Jesus, because that's more of my concern, quite honestly, who are also feeding into that fear and into that anxiety. Because I want you to know that even if Satan himself ran for and won election as president of the United States, that God is still in control. I think I say this every four years, <laughs> that no matter what, our hope is never found who is in the White House, never our hope ultimately is in God. And if you find yourself wrapped up in fear and anxiety, let me encourage you to begin to worship God. Let me encourage you, obviously, to turn off the television. Let me encourage you to simply remember who you are. You are a beloved child of God. God loves you, and God will always be with you no matter what may happen in the days ahead. Secondly, I think we are in danger of succumbing to the temptation of power and politics when we spend more time, energy, and money on those things than we do in serving others. Remember Jesus. He could have avoided the struggle and the strain and the stress and the anxiety, the sacrifice and the cross. He could have avoided all of those things 
But what Jesus understood is that his call was to serve and struggle and sacrifice rather than spending copious amounts of time on whether one should be for Caesar or against Caesar. As Tom Long points out, Jesus spent time with lepers and prostitutes. He spent time doing the frustrating job of teaching slow-learning disciples who would deny him and even betray him. He washed feet. He suffered. He died. Let me put it to you like this, to be somewhat blunt. If your neighbors know more about who you are and what you believe because of the signs that you put in your front yard than they do because they have experienced personally, your love and grace and hospitality and welcome and servanthood, then I want to encourage you to go home to pick up your sign and to put it inside of your house. And then spend the next four years loving them and serving them and caring for them And then in four years, if you want to bring back that sign, it may be a different sign by then, maybe not, then by all means. But we are a different kind of people. Well before your neighbors should know who you are voting for, they should know who you are living for. Let me say it again. Well before people should know who you are voting for, they should know who you are living for by the ways in which you serve and love. And finally, and this is geared towards those of us in the church, I want to suggest that we have given in to the power of temptation or of politics and power rather than God when we forget that those who sit across from us on the political aisle are not just those people, are not them, but that they are also beloved children of God. You can rest assured, I don't think we usually think about it like this, But when you forget that they are beloved children of God by the way in which you treat those who disagree with you, what you are also revealing is that you have forgotten that you are a beloved child of God. When you forget by the way that you are treating them that they have been baptized, you are also forgetting that you have been baptized as well. And we as followers of Jesus Christ are called to a different kind of way, a different way to disagree with those who do not agree with us. It doesn't mean that you can't disagree with people vehemently. I have seen brothers and sisters in Christ disagree with one another politically and do so in an incredible way. But it does mean that at no point as you are in the midst of disagreeing with them would anyone question whether you would love them or not. And that is incredibly sacrificial and difficult. I think one of the ways, perhaps, that we can begin to tell whether or not we have forgotten whether those around us are beloved children of God 
is by whether we only get angry at them when they disagree, when we disagree with them, or whether there isn't also a significant part of us that grieves for this difference. Over my time here now, six and a half years, I have preached, or I have said probably three or four, I think that's really it, I can remember them, uh, what, what, what I or others would consider to be a political statement. I want you to know this, that every time I did that, before I did so, I grieved the fact that I was doing so. I grieved not because of the fact that I thought I shouldn't say it or even necessarily because I regretted saying it. I grieved because I knew that the words that I was going to speak were going to cause pain to some people. I knew, in fact, that it would anger some people. I knew, actually, that they would end up, some of them at least, leaving and breaking relationship with me and with this congregation because of it. And I don't do that lightly. And unfortunately, every time I've said it, I have been right. (laughs) Sometimes they've just slowly kind of left. Sometimes it's been followed by a Sunday afternoon email. Sometime, honestly, this has happened a few times, they couldn't even wait till the end of the service. They just left. There have been moments when I have simply gotten angry at those people. Did you notice how I used the word those people? It's much like Moses did with the Israelites. And I've just kind of chopped it up to too much time uh, watching CNN or Fox or being too far to the left or the right. No, just forget it. But in those moments when I have remembered that they are beloved children of God, in those moments I realize that I am simply grieving. And I, I want to suggest this. That when you are with a brother or sister in Christ who differs from you in these ways, if what you find is that you are simply just getting angry or righteously indignant rather than grieving that difference, then it might be a sign that you are beginning to worship not God, but that you are giving in to the temptation to worship power or politics. Again, we can disagree, but no disagreement can ever allow you to treat a baptized child of God as anything less than that. On Tuesday night, or Wednesday morning, or in three weeks' time, whenever it is that we finally discover who's elected here in the United States. I hope that whether your candidate wins or loses, that at no point do you forget that you are beloved children of God. And I hope that when you look to the left or to the right of you, whether that person is Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or Green Party or Tory or Whig, or whatever else. I hope that what you see is someone who at some point has had the waters of baptism poured over them and that you will remember 
that they are beloved children of God. And that together we will keep moving forward. Struggling, sacrificing, serving, following the way of Jesus. For his kingdom is the only kingdom that is eternal. May it be so. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we pray that your spirit